any better. I mean, it just confirms your faith that there is a God, and wow, <sighs> so thankful. Um, Isaiah chapter 48. As we continue our study in the book of Isaiah, for those of you who are just joining us here for the first time this Sunday, we're really glad that you're here worshiping with us. Uh, our church has been studying through the Old Testament book of Isaiah since like January, and we'll probably be, fin- uh, be finished in about March of uh, next year. So nearing the end here as we look at different passages in Isaiah. And this is Isaiah chapter uh, 48, and let me just read the first 11 verses, which is what we're going to study this morning. Listen to this, O house of Jacob, you who are called by the name of Israel and come from the line of Judah. You who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness. You who call yourselves citizens of the holy city and rely on the God of Israel. The Lord Almighty is His name. I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted and they came to pass. For I knew how stubborn you were. The sinews of your neck were iron. Your forehead was bronze. Therefore, I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you, so that you could not say, My idols did them. My wooden image and metal God ordained them. You have heard these things. Look at them all. Will you not admit them? From now on, I will tell you of new things, of hidden things unknown to you. They are created now and not long ago. You have not heard of them before today. So you cannot say, Yes, I knew of them. You have neither heard nor understood. From of old your ear has not been opened. Well do I know how treacherous you are. You are called a rebel from birth. For my own name's sake I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise I hold it back from you, so as not to cut you off. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own name's sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Let's pray. Lord, uh, my heart is so uh, Grinch-like. It's so narrow and small. And, and I think of that, that Christmas special where the Grinch's heart grows three times larger at the end. And, and he's filled up with joy. And Lord, I need you to do that same miracle for me at Christmas. To make my heart expand so that I might be able to, to delight in you. And Lord, my heart is so narrow and hard and small, and I, I, I'm obsessed with myself and my own needs and my own wants. But Lord, God, life is about you, God. It's about your glory. It's about knowing you and praising you. And So Lord, I pray, do that miracle in our hearts. Even now, as we study this Bible passage, enlarge in our hearts so that we might be able to delight in you and in your glory. Give us, Lord, an insatiable appetite for the glory of Jesus Christ this Christmas season. This would be the greatest gift, Lord, that you could give us. would be new hearts, bigger hearts, focused on you. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, this is the uh, Christmas season, and it's, of course, the time of year when we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ about 2,000 years ago. That's, of course, the, the meaning of Christmas. Um, And uh, you might not know that if you went to a shopping mall because (laughs) you look around the shopping mall, there's absolutely nothing there that would in any way indicate that there was a Jesus born 2,000 years ago. You know, I dare you to find some proof of it there. And this is one of the things we struggle with as, as American Christians. We're always trying to 
push back, peel back the wrapping paper of commercialism in America. But, you know, we're always trying to push it back from our families so that we can stay focused on the real meaning of Christmas, which is the birth of Jesus. Well, this morning, I'd like to focus us more on the real meaning of Christmas and perhaps take us a little deeper in, uh, drill down a little deeper into the true meaning of Christmas. Uh, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, but, but I'd like to ask the question, why? Why did Jesus come into this world? I mean, that's what Christmas is about, but why is that significant? Why did he come? Why did God the Father send God the Son to planet Earth to become a human being? You know, why is this such a significant event that we would go to all this trouble to decorate and celebrate and light candles and make this such an important event? And most of us probably could answer that question. We'd say, well, uh, it's actually about the cross, Jesus came from heaven to earth so that he might live and die on the cross. And so to really understand Christmas, you kind of have to look through Christmas and see Easter. You can't understand the wooden manger until you understand the wooden cross. That's what he came for. Okay, but let's ask again. Let's drill down deeper. Why? I mean, oh, that's why Jesus came to die on the cross. But why did he die on the cross? Maybe some of you saw that movie, The, the Passion, whatever, it was about a year ago now it came out. And you, you see Jesus go through all the suffering, and you have to ask the question, why did he do that? Why did he go through that? And again, we could probably answer that question successfully. Well, he died for our sins. I mean, my little kids know this. We repeat it to them all the time. Why did Jesus die on the cross? For our sins. And even if they don't fully know what it means, they know those words. So Jesus on the cross was taking the punishment for my sins that I deserve. He was subbing in for me. He was on the cross where I should be. He was taking the punishment that I deserve. Okay, but again, let's drill deeper because I don't think we're still at the bottom yet. Why did Jesus come from heaven to earth to die on the cross? We could probably answer this one too. Well, because he loved us. This is the love of God. And, and really, when we come to the love of God, we're coming to the, the basement level meaning of Christmas. Christmas is ultimately about God's loving us so much that he sent Jesus into the world so that he could grow up and die on the cross for our sins, so that we could be forgiven of our sins. This is the love of God. In fact, it says it right in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his love for us. And this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is God's love. And, and so if you come away from Christmas understanding that God loved us so much that he sent Jesus, you really are getting down to the, the heart pulse of what Christmas is all about. But this morning, I'd like to even drill one level deeper. Uh, if Christmas is the basement of, of God's, or if God's love for us is the basement, I'd like to drill down into the, the rock underneath it. Why does God love us? I mean, we usually don't ask that question. We usually stop at the love of God, and you don't really need to go deeper because it's such a wonderful thing. And we bask in the fact that God loved us and sent Jesus. But now I'd like to go down a little deeper with you this morning and ask this question, why does God love us? Why the whole thing? I mean, we still don't really have the fundamental explanation for it. And when we ask the question, why does God love us, this is when we, even as Christians, typically give the wrong answer. The answer we tend to give is something like, well, God loves us because we're worth it. Because God don't make no junk. Or whatever that old t-shirt was. Because, because I'm special. 
Of course God would love me. I mean, He wouldn't want me to go to waste. And, and somehow the, the answer comes about to, to our worthiness. That's why God loved me and sent Jesus to save me, because, you know, He wouldn't want this to go to waste. <clears throat> Wrong answer. Wrong answer. little uh, splash of cold eggnog in our faces this morning. You and I are not worth saving. God doesn't love us because there's something so wonderful about us that He's like, I can't let that go to waste. Or they're so wonderful, they just deserve it. No, no, no. There's nothing aromatic about me to God's nose. There's nothing pleasing in the way I've lived my life that makes God say, well, you know, Jeremy's been not good this year. I've checked my Christmas list and he deserves my love and my salvation. There's nothing like that. Just the opposite. The way I have lived my life as a human being does not draw forth the love and compassion and mercy of God. On the contrary, the way I've lived my life as a human being should only draw forth the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the condemnation of God, the rejection of God. I'm just like these people right here in the book of Isaiah that we just read about. I'm just like Israel in Isaiah's day. They're a picture of humanity. Here in chapter 48, verse 1. Listen to this, O house of Jacob, you who are called by the name of Israel and come from the line of Judah. You who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness. So I'm just like Israel. I'm a hypocrite. That's what we're talking about here. This is hypocrisy. The Israel, you know, they claim to be the true people of God and we're God's special people. We trust God and we look to God. But in Isaiah's day, even though they said that and invoked God's name, their lives told a totally different story. And so this is a way of Isaiah saying, you people are hypocrites. And you know, I'm a hypocrite too. I, I know it. Some people don't like the church. They say, well, I don't believe in Christianity because the church is full of hypocrites. You know, and I always say, yeah, <laughs> it is. I have yet to meet one Christian who fully lives up to the name of Christ. You know, Mahatma Gandhi was an admirer of Christ, and someone once asked him, well, if you admire Jesus so much, why don't you become a Christian? And he said, well, when I meet a Christian who actually lives like Jesus, I may consider it. Yeah. That's a good answer. But you know, it goes the other way, because the fact is we're all hypocrites. Even if you're not a Christian, we're all hypocrites at some level. We all oversell ourselves. We all try to say that we're more than we really are, morally and spiritually speaking. Uh, even if you're not a Christian, and I were to ask you, are, do you think you're a good person? You'd probably say, yeah, I'm a good person. I mean, maybe someone here would stand up and say, I'm a bad person. But I'm guessing most people I talk to, they say, I'm a good person. I'm a decent person. You know, we're so good and decent. That's why we go to the shopping mall and, you know, in our cars at people and, you know, give people the Massachusetts State Bird and, you know... Um, <laughs> That's why we're going to go to Christmas parties and we're going to get drunk. You know, that's how to celebrate Christmas, getting inebriated. That's why at Christmas time, I'm so absorbed with, why did they get me that? What are they saying to me about me? And, you know, I'm not going to get them that next year. And we're into this petty, selfish kind of thing at Christmas because we're such good people. We're not good people. We're hypocrites if we think that we are. And the point is, the point is, Hypocrites don't deserve to be saved. Hypocrites do not draw forth the love of God. You, know, you hate hypocrites. You see hypocrisy anywhere and it's like, ugh. Well, that's how God feels about hypocrisy. He sees hypocrisy and he even more goes, ugh. And, and that's what I deserve from God. I deserve God to go, ugh, all over me. 
because I'm a hypocrite. But not only am I a hypocrite, uh, look at the next verse. I'm also, I'm also a stubborn, I have a stubborn streak of unbelief in me. Stubborn unbelievers. Verse 3. I foretold the former things long ago, God says. My mouth announced them and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted and they came to pass. For I knew how stubborn you were. The sinews of your neck were like iron. Your forehead was bronze. Therefore, I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you so that you could not say, my idols did them. My wooden image and metal God ordained them. You have heard these things. Look at them all. Will you not admit them? So apparently God explains why he predicts things in advance. You've heard of predictive prophecy. We've studied it a couple weeks ago. That that God would often teach us things in advance and then bring them to pass. It's amazing. If that's something you want to study, if you're interested in Christianity, study the phenomena of predictive prophecy. It's amazing to see the prophecies that were given hundreds of years in advance and the specific detail in which they are fulfilled accurately, historically, down the road. But, but the, God says, the reason I did that whole thing was because I know how stubbornly unbelieving we are as people. That we just won't believe God. And so God has to do these outrageously amazing things just to get us to sit up and take notice. Because otherwise we wouldn't believe. And even when we see it, we still sometimes don't believe. Because we're stubborn unbelievers. That's what we're like. You know, I, I talk to people sometimes and they say, well, okay, you're a pastor. Prove to me that God exists. Go ahead, prove it. And, I, and I'm always like, you know, okay, I'll try. There are great proofs for God, God's existence. You don't have to be an empty-headed, you know, leap of, blind leap of faith person to believe in God. There's really good evidences and arguments for the existence of God. And so I start presenting some of them. But I, I sigh because I just know it's most likely not going to go anywhere. That no matter what I say and what I throw out and how logical it is, people are going to go, no, 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 no. You know, and, and I, I've just had enough experiences that I realize the problem isn't a fact problem. It's not that there isn't enough data. You know, we like to think that we're like Mr. Spock and we're just so logical. And if you just give me the right data, I will come to a logical conclusion. That's not how we are. The problem is our hearts. We're stubborn in our hearts and, and I just don't want to believe. Because I know that if I were to believe what you're telling me about Jesus, it's going to have to change my life. And I don't want to change my life. And so there's this dug-in stubbornness of unbelief. But it's not just for people before they become Christians. Even after I've been drugged, kicking and screaming into God's kingdom, as C.S. Lewis says, and I become a Christian, I'm still stubborn in my unbelief. You know, I'll stand up here on a Sunday and I'll preach to you about trusting God and believe in God and you can trust Him and I'll you know, give this sermon and I'll preach from my heart and I'll believe everything I'm saying and I'll come into work Monday morning and there'll be some problem or some brush fire and I'll be like, oh no, what am I going to do? And I'll start feeling the anxiety and the stress welling up in me and I've got to call this person, I've got to do that, I've got to do that, I've got to do that. You know, everything except trust God. God's like, Jeremy... Didn't you hear your own sermon yesterday? Trust me. Believe in me. Like, oh yeah, I've got to believe in you. You are the one who has to solve this problem, God. It's so hard for me to trust God. I feel like Peter when he said, Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's so me when I read those words. I, I, I have this strain of stubborn unbelief in me. Even when God provides and he provides and he answers a prayer and he answers another prayer and he provides and then I come to the next thing and I still doubt that he's going to provide for me. He's like, look what I've done for you all your life, Jeremy, providing for you and I still doubt him. I'm like, ah, oh, 
I have the same problem as the Israelites do. And again, the point is, people who have stubborn unbelief do not deserve the love of God. We deserve the judgment of God. Because I'm a hypocrite and I'm a stubborn unbeliever. And, last verse here, I'm rebellious. I'm, I'm treacherously rebellious. Verse 6. From now on I will tell you of new things, of hidden things unknown to you. They are created now and not long ago. You have not heard them before today. So you cannot say, well, yes, I knew of them. You have neither heard nor understood. From of old you have been, your ears has not been open. Well do I know how treacherous you are. You are called a rebel from birth. A rebel from birth. That's who I am. I, I have this rebellious streak in me. I don't want anyone to tell me what to do, or how to live my life, or how to do it, especially not God. That's the human tendency. We don't want people ordering us around. I mean, you know, we're Yankees here in New England. We're independent. We don't want anyone to tell us how to do anything. And it's so petty sometimes. Just yesterday, just yesterday, uh, having breakfast with my family, and we're eating some Krispy Kreme donuts. And so I, someone gave us some Krispy Kreme donuts. Oh, you know, if, if you doubt the existence of God, you know, eat a Krispy Kreme donut. <laughs> it's got to be a God. It's amazing. So I was... Um, and I was going to heat up a couple for the kids in the microwave because you can heat them up and make them all soft and gooey. Anyway, uh, so I, I, I put two of them on a plate to put in the microwave. My wife says to me, my wife says, actually, just put those in one at a time. That's what it says in the box. And I don't know if I just got up on the wrong side of the bed. It just bugged me. She was telling me how to cook Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> so, I, so I just shot back at her. I go, I go, do you have any other instructions for me? You know? And I'm like... Such a jerk! <laughs> you know, you know, you have those moments, and you're like, "What is wrong with me?" You know, I'm even stubborn about how I want to cook my Krispy Kreme donuts. I don't want anyone telling me what to do, and not even about my donut cooking. I mean, that's it's it's so ingrained in me. And as it says here, you are you are rebels from birth. I'm telling you, people, this is not something that in society ingrains in us. This is something we are born with. Original sin is real. That little baby, that little eight-month-old I have at home that I love is a little sinner waiting to happen. I know, because the other three were. And <laughs> i got to teach my kids a lot of things, but I've never had to teach my kids how to lie. They knew how to do that even before they watched television, even before they went to preschool. My kids know how to be covetous, Mine, mine, mine. <laughs> I never had to teach them that. My kids know how to be nasty and disrespectful. What I have to teach them is how to do the right thing. And so we don't like the doctrine of original sin, but the problem is it's in our face 24-7. And, and we are rebels from birth. And I, I've never outgrown this rebellious streak. And again, the point is, rebels, just like hardened unbelievers, just like hypocrites, don't deserve the love of God. We don't deserve to be saved. So when we go back to that original question, why does God love me? Why did God love me, not only to send His Son, but to pay the extravagant price of the blood of Jesus on the cross? Why did He do that? The wrong answer is, because I'm worth it, because I deserve it, because of course God wouldn't want to waste me. I hope this doesn't offend you when I say you're not worth the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is the most precious thing that's ever been 
spent ever. It's more precious than all the treasures on planet Earth. We are not worth the blood of Jesus. So again, I ask, why does God love us? Why did He do this extravagant thing of Christmas and Easter? Why does He love us? What is it that's motivating Him? If it's not me and my worthiness, then what is it? And the answer comes in verse 9. And it's so profound. God says, For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. In other words, I, I give salvation and mercy. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to cut you off. Why does God love me? I asked a professor that once when I was in seminary. I was wrestling with it. I said, why does God love me? Okay, I know he loves, but why does he love me? And the professor thought about it for a second and he says, God loves you because he loves himself more. Notice that. Isn't that interesting? It sounds funny, doesn't it? Verse 9 for my own namesake I delay my wrath. In other words, God's saying, for my own glory, for my own uh, greatness and worthiness, because I am great, I'm going to save you and forgive you. Not because you are, but because I am. Or verse 9, for, my own, for the sake of my praise, I hold it back for you. God says, I want more praise, I want more glory, I want myself to be magnified and shown to be great, therefore, I'm going to save you. Not for who you are, but because of of who I am. And this theme is, is all throughout the Bible. I mean, I, I challenge you, the next time you're reading through the Bible, or some of you read through the Bible on a regular basis, you know, just put on these lenses and look for all the places where God does things for the ultimate purpose of glorifying Himself and exalting Himself and, and making Himself more famous in our eyes and making Himself great and showing how great He is. Just, you know, maybe take a certain colored pen, like get a red pen, underline every time you see that in the Bible. And pretty soon your Bible is going to be full of red. It's all throughout the Bible. For instance, let me just show you a few more. Keep a finger here. Look at Isaiah 43. Go back a few chapters to Isaiah 43. And here again, God is castigating Israel and us for how phony our worship is. Look at Isaiah 43, verse 24. God says of Israel's worship, You have not bought any fragrant calamus for me or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices but you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses that's us so you'd think God would respond with judgment and rejection but instead he forgives us look at verse 25 I even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more not because of who I am, but because of his own, for his own sake. Or if you take out your sermon notes for a minute, this insert in your bulletin, it says Isaiah on the top. I listed a few more verses. We, we could spend an hour reading Bible verses that talk about God's ultimate motivation for doing what he does is to glorify himself and make himself great. Um, we won't, but we could. It's a great exercise. Let me just, here on the front page, the top, 1 Samuel 12:22 For the sake of his great name the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make them his own. Or look at the third quote down Ezekiel 36:22 so blatant. Therefore say to the house of Israel this is what the sovereign Lord says It is not for your sake O house of Israel that I'm going to do these things and these things are salvation but for the sake of my holy name 
which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. It's for God's own sake that he does these things. You know, it's what the angels were singing. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest. That's why Jesus came, so that God would get all the glory in the highest. That God would be exalted and displayed. And so because that's God's goal, he does everything he does, including saving us, to exalt his own name and his own glory. I mean, how does that sound to you? Is it... That kind of funny. That kind of strike. You know, sometimes that strikes me funny. Like, isn't it wrong to be self-centered? It sounds like God's being self-centered. It sounds like God's being selfish. It sounds like like God is um, using us as a means to the end of promoting Himself. It just sounds weird. Isn't it wrong to be self-centered? Isn't it wrong to be selfish? Isn't it wrong to think that you're like the center of the universe? And it's all about you. I mean, don't we like preach against that in churches? Isn't that pride and self-promotion? Um, and I guess the short answer is, yes, it is wrong for us to be all about ourselves. It is wrong for us to be selfish. It is wrong for us to be self-serving. It is wrong for us to use people to promote ourselves. It is wrong for us to behave as if we're the center of the universe, as if it's all about us. But God, on the other hand, actually is the center of the universe. <laughs> That's why it's wrong for us, because we're not. But like, what if you actually were the center of the universe? What if you actually were the best, greatest, most awesome, most wonderful thing there is? What if it is actually all about you? Then it would be a sin not to promote yourself. It would be wrong to... to shun yourself because you would be doing a disservice, a disjustice, to, injustice to the greatest, best thing there is. Does that make sense? So it's because of who God is. God is the best thing. He is the greatest good. You know, type in the greatest good on your Google search and if it could search the whole universe, it would come up with just one entry. God. There's one greatest good and He is God. And so in order to show His greatness, to show that He is good, he unswervingly and unflinchingly promotes and protects the greatest good, which is himself. If God promoted something other than the greatest good, he wouldn't be a good God. So he, he's a good God, he promotes the greatest good, which is himself. And so God is about upholding and displaying his own glory, because that means he's a good God. Anything less than that would be evil. Does that make sense? Or am I just like, had too many Krispy Kremes? <laughs> just, <ooh. laughs> But, but it's, it's so amazing to think of... And I love that because it just puts God in the center and it puts us on the periphery. He really is the center. It really is all about Him, not about us. And it's all about Him for Him as well as it is for us. This is why the Bible so unashamedly talks about God being a jealous God. You read this phrase in the Bible and we read that and we go, oh, I don't think I read that. We'll just keep moving. Jealous God, I'm not sure. Because we, we hear about God being a jealous God. In fact, I put it in your sermon notes in, uh, from Exodus 25, which is the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 is where the Ten Commandments are found in the Bible. And here's commandment number two. You will not bow down to them, that is to idols, or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And we're like, what? You know, when you think of jealousy, you think like the spoiled kid at Christmas who gets all these presents, but he's mad because he didn't get the Nintendo DS, or he's mad because he didn't get the electric scooter, and he sees his friends riding around in the street with it. And, you know, he's got the whole pile of presents, but he's jealous because he didn't get the one thing 
that he wanted. And we're like, is that what we mean by God being jealous? Like, no, no, it's, it's a different kind of jealousy. There are some jealousies that are good, you know. It's good for a husband to be jealous for his wife and not want anyone edging in on it. That's, that's good. You should, husbands should be jealous. Wives should be jealous for one another. And that's how it is with God. He's jealous for something sacred, which is his own name and his own glory. So now let me see if I can kind of bring this all together and wrap it up. Um, and bring all these thoughts together. God sent Jesus at Christmas to die on the cross for my sins because he loves me. He loves me with such a lavish love. But why does God love me? And the wrong answer is because I am worth it. The right answer is because he loves his own glory. And in order to demonstrate that he is such a loving and compassionate and merciful God, he chooses freely to save a vile, rebellious, hypocritical, nasty person like me whose rebellion just goes deep down into my toes. And God still has mercy on me even though I go the opposite direction. Even though, as the Bible says, I am spiritually dead. That's what the Bible describes me as. Uh, in other words, spiritually, before God, I'm like a corpse. And there's nothing pretty or aromatic about a corpse. <laughs> it's only one thing you do with corpses. You bury them. And I deserve to be buried underneath the wrath of God. But instead, Christ was buried for me. And he, God did this because He wants to show what a great God He is. When Jesus was dying on the cross, the cross was not a spotlight shining on Jeremy saying, Look, Jeremy, look how worth it you are. Just the opposite. The cross was a spotlight shining up to God, saying, look how merciful our God is that He would even give His own Son to save someone like Jeremy. Wow! What a God! He must be loving and merciful and compassionate. This truth will change your life. This is one of those truths that will change your life. If you can, and if I can, kind of get it past intellectual arguments and data and let it kind of percolate down into my soul, it'll change your life in at least two ways. Let me just, we could probably go on all morning talking about how this truth changes life, but let me just give you two quick examples, then we'll close. The first thing is that I think this truth gives us great comfort. Great comfort. The fact that God saves us for His own sake should comfort us because it means that God's love for me is unconditional. It's unconditional. Because God's love for me is not a response to me. You know, if God loved me because of something that I was, then that would mean I would need to work hard at, you know, still being that thing so that God's love would still be there for me. You know, God's love is not like a, like a guy who marries a woman because she's a trophy wife and she's gorgeous or some girl who marries a guy because he's a trophy husband and he's rich. And then, you know, down the road, the woman loses her beauty or down the road, the guy loses his fortunes and... And so they grow disaffected and they grow apart. You know, God's love is not based on some condition about me. It's flowing up from the wellspring of His own glory for His own sake. Just to please Himself, He's loving me. And so it has nothing to do about the inherent loveliness of me. That means that love is unconditional. That no matter what I do, I can't stop the love of God. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ, says the Apostle Paul? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul says, No, I am convinced that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because that love is unconditional. It's flowing out of who God is, not about me. So 
I can't shake the love of God. And even when I sin, He forgives me and pours more Holy Spirit into me to change me, to make me a more godly person. I can't get away from His love. It's unconditional. Isn't that a comfort? And I know some of us struggle with the love of God. We wonder, how could God love me? Because I've done some things. I've done some things. And God's like, I know, but I didn't love you because of who you were. I loved you because of who I am. And so you can't, you know, try. Try to get out of my love. It's like we're right in there in His hand. He's like, go ahead, try. This is amusing. You know, keep trying. You done yet? You done struggling? I love you! You know, we're just struggling, struggling. I love you. And He's trying to tell us, but we can't get out of His hand any more than my, my two-year-old could pry my hand open. You know, he couldn't do it. And so you can't pry God's hand of love. When God predestines you to be saved, he's got you. There's nothing you can do. It's awesome. And that comfort should lead to a second application, which is a a high calling. That realizing the great love of God for me should then call me forth to a life lived for the glory of God. If God's love truly is the greatest, if God truly is the greatest thing, then my life should be about the greatest thing, which is to glorify God. Uh, If God is jealous for His glory, then I should be, above all else, zealous for His glory. I should have a zeal for who God is. Uh, He should be my number one motivation. My life is about Him. Some of you wonder, what is the meaning of life? That's easy. The meaning of life is not hard to understand. It's to enjoy and glorify God. That's why we're all here on planet Earth. That's why we exist, to glorify Him. You ever seen those bracelets, WWJD? What would Jesus do? And I guess the idea is you wear the bracelet around and when you get stuck during the day or have a tough time on a Wednesday at work or school, you look at that bracelet and you're like, oh yeah, what would Jesus do? Okay, and then you try to do what Jesus would do. I've never really, I've never been totally comfortable with those bracelets because I don't think they always work. Maybe I'm being way too analytical. But, but I think, you know, there's some situations where I can't do what Jesus did. Like if I was in a hospital and I saw a sick person, what would Jesus do? Well, he'd heal them. And I, can, I can't do that. I can pray for the person. But I, so, you know, I don't know. Again, like maybe I'm just way too analytical here. But I just think like, oh, that bracelet doesn't work in every situation. So I've come up with one that I think is better. How about WWGJ? What would glorify Jesus? I think, try it out if you're really obsessed with this like I am. And, and just see if it doesn't like work out more. And when I'm in any situation, I've got to say, what will glorify Jesus? What action would I take in this situation that would bring glory to God? How do I glorify God with my money, with my time, with my, my body, with my marriage, with my singleness, with my children, with my inability to have children? You know, whatever it is, how do I glorify God with everything in my life that God has given me? How do I bring Him all the praise that I can? That's the meaning of human life. We should be zealous people. We should be like this famous description on the back of your sermon notes by J.C. Riley about zealous people. I'm just going to read this and I'm going to close and that's it. A zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. It is not enough to say that he is earnest, hearty, uncompromising, thoroughgoing, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. He only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he's sick, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, 
whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame. For all this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. If he's consumed in the very burning, he cares not for it. He's content. He feels that like a lamp, he's made to burn. And if consumed in the burning, he has but done the work for which God appointed him. Such a one will always find a sphere for his zeal. If he cannot preach, work, and give money, he will cry and sigh and pray. If he cannot fight in the valley with Joshua, he will do the work of Moses, Aaron, and Hur on the hill. If he is cut off from working himself, he will give the Lord no rest till he is raised up from another quarter, till help is raised up from another quarter and the work is done. This is what I mean when I speak of zeal and religion. Lord Jesus, enlarge in our hearts. Give us an insatiable appetite for your glory. Help us to live for you, God, and to see our lives as about you. This takes a supernatural miracle to give us new hearts and to make them big. God, I pray for all of us, that, especially for myself, that all the pettiness and the vain pursuits of this world would seem so worthless compared to knowing your glory. Lord, help us to be people of your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And I'll have a kids' choir that's going to come and close the service with a, a special number.